Welcome to another episode of Preferred Walk-On, PFF's college football show. I'm your host, Max Chadwick, alongside my co-host, Dalton Wasserman, with our five biggest games of Week 9. And unfortunately, Dalton, our streak of five straight weekends with at least four ranked games, it came to an end this week. There's only two ranked games, man. But there are a few other games that we're talking about today that are very interesting for a myriad of reasons. So it should still be a really, really fun preview episode that we have for you guys today. Yeah, absolutely. It's not as loaded a slate as past weeks, but you know in college football anything can happen. It's hard to believe it's week nine already, but yeah. these these games we're going to go over, they have a ton of storylines, there's a ton of injury storylines, there's teams that are struggling in certain facets, and we already know upsets can happen any week. Mm-hmm. We saw a couple of these teams play close games last week, so you know got through some close calls and wouldn't shock me at all if it was the same this week. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned it. It's always the slates of college football. You say, oh, nothing's going to happen. I could probably take the Saturday off. That's when the most madness happens. So you better be parked on that couch for 12 hours once again on Saturday because we're probably going to get some more madness uh, on this slate. But the first game we're talking about, Dalton, is number six Oklahoma at Kansas, which is at noon Eastern time on Fox. And you mentioned it before how a number of these teams kind of had a scare this past week. Oklahoma was one of them. So the big storyline for me going into this is how do they respond to that scare? Now, they've kind of been walking the tightrope in these last couple games. Now, one of them was Texas, which, honestly, you beat Texas. That's probably the best win of the season for any team right now. The other one, last week, was against UCF. They were down late in that game. They pulled out a two-point victory over UCF. That is now 3-4. and four on the season so Oklahoma kind of had a hangover game against UCF after obviously the thrilling Texas win a, a few weeks ago now they got to play a Kansas team right now is five and two and uh, a pretty good Kansas team honestly Dawn. so yeah the, the big story for me is just how will Oklahoma respond to the scare they had this past weekend yeah, I agree. I mean, you get in conference and everybody knows you. And I'll be honest with you, Oklahoma doesn't, especially offensively, they don't do a ton of things schematically that are very complicated. They do the simple things properly. They do it at a very, very, very fast pace. Defensively, we've we know we've sung the praises of of Brett Venables, but over the last couple of weeks, it's looked a little shakier. Right, thirty-one points and twenty-nine points against UCF. They, they're starting to show the cracks a little bit on defense, and they can't afford that because their offense, they remind me a little bit of Oregon. Their mm-hmm. offense doesn't go over, over the top, like have exceptional games by their standards, but they're very consistent. They're about as consistent as offense and offense as you can see every week. Defensively, though, I'm starting to see some breakdowns on the back end that I don't think we're used to seeing now with Oklahoma. Look, it looks almost a little more like last year, and I think a big struggle I found is in play action. All right, over the last, actually, excuse me, since week five, okay, it's their last three games, a fifty-one coverage grade against play action, which is in the bottom twenty of the country. Why is that important this week as a schematic factor? Kansas. Basically, they win and lose with their play-action passing. And their five wins, an 85.4 passing grade on play-action. Their two losses, a 57.7. So, you know, I, I'm pretty sure they're not going to have Jalen Daniels again this week. If it's yeah. Jason Bean, play-action, especially running in play-action, is even more important because he can't improvise the way that Daniels could, right? But this is where you're starting to see some breakdowns. They fall. Texas found this, and UCF capitalized it on, on it too as well. The play-action game and getting linebackers to step up and getting the ball to the intermediate levels of the defense has been giving Oklahoma a lot of problems, all right? It's not easy to get over the top on them. They handle 
east and west well, the screen game, they tackle well. But their, their second level of their defense in play action has been causing a lot of problems the last couple of weeks. And, you know, we know Oklahoma's going to score 30 to 35 points. That's not a question, right? Can Kansas keep up with them? There's a road for them to do it, even with Jason Bean. Again, they have to have some success running the ball. And if they can set up the play action when Kansas has been their best on offense, that's when they've been getting off. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned it. My big matchup looking at this game is can Jason Bean get anything going in the passing game? Now, it might sound like, yeah, no duh when you say, oh, the starting quarterback is way better than the backup quarterback. But it is true in Kansas' case. You know, Jalen Daniels, 88.4 passing grade, 12th among FBS quarterbacks. Jason Bean's been solid. Don't get me wrong, 72.1. It's about average in college football right now. But there is a big difference between Jalen Daniels, one of the top quarterbacks in the country, and Jason Bean, who's a solid backup, a good backup, but still not the superstar that you have under center when you have Jalen Daniels back there. And you brought up a good point, too, where Kansas, without Jalen Daniels, has really relied on this run game. Devin Neal, their star running back, he has 265 rushing yards in the three games without Jalen Daniels this season. In those three games, that is 13th among Power 5 running backs this season. But the problem for that, for Kansas... Oklahoma has 72, 72 tackles for loss or no gain this year. That is 12 more than any other team in college football right now. Oklahoma's run defense is very sound. Should not be any surprise when you see Brent Venables coaching them. Danny Stutzman, their linebacker, has been fantastic in the run game. The defensive line has been fantastic as well. I just don't know if Devin Neal, man, can really lead this team to victory like he's done in, in previous games without Jalen Daniels. And that's why I think Jason Bean is going to have to make some throws, probably off play action, like you said, in order for Kansas to really have a shot at upsetting Oklahoma in this game. Yeah, I, I agree. I, they have to, Kansas has to, as much as they can, stay within the foundation of their offense, right? Bean is not the worst backup quarterback you can no. have, but he's not a, he's also not a guy you, you want to just get in a pure drop back game, especially against a defense like this. That's just dropping back and throwing the football is not how you beat Oklahoma. You have to have the foundation of your offense in. You have to be able to get to the play action. There are, there are holes. There's holes in this defense. Mm -hmm. The cracks are showing. And Kansas definitely has a shot schematically to give Oklahoma a lot of problems. But you're right. With Neal and the running game, they have to set the foundation of the offense. And honestly, Bean will probably have to be a part of it. Not as yeah. heavy a part as Daniels would be. But if he can even get the read option game going a little bit, add a little misdirection to it, you you can cause Oklahoma problems schematically. But you there there are steps. There are There has to be layers to it right and and you know and the other thing too for kansas they cannot they just can't fall behind they fell behind last yep. week and ended up losing to oklahoma state they can't fall behind if they fall it's exactly what we're saying if they fall behind and they get in a pure drop back game where they have to just throw it into oklahoma secondary it's going to be a long day yeah absolutely so don who are you going with in this game are you picking the upset or you think oklahoma is going to keep their undefeated season alive um I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna be a decent game. I do, I, I, but I'm gonna go with Oklahoma. I'm gonna say 41 to 34. I think we get a shootout. I think Kansas does find some holes. Beans. Beans a competitor, actually. Yeah. For, you know, for as much as yeah, he's a backup. He's fun to watch. He, he's he's never really out of the game. Even last year, he did this where he gives you a good game. But the the other problem I have is Kansas. You know, I, I started to think after they beat BYU and I believe they held them to like nine rushing yards that maybe their run defense had turned a corner, and it hasn't since week five. They have the fifth worst run defense in the country, um, and and between the tackles on the season, they're the eleventh worst run defense in the country. 
you can line up, and I think Oklahoma's going to want to do this because Oklahoma goes really, really fast, and they run the basics of their offense, right? They're going to line up. They're going to run between the tackles until Kansas can prove they can stop them, right? Oklahoma's a top 25 team running between the tackles. Kansas is a bottom 12 team. It, it's just – it's not a good matchup on I, – I can see how Kansas's offense can have success in this game. I'm struggling to find where their defense will, yeah. especially you know if Oklahoma gets the ball first and they come out with one of their one of their drives where they run 13 plays in three minutes and and 10 of them are run plays and Gabriel makes the easy throws. It sets up you know we talked about Kansas trying to get to the foundation of their offense. They're trying to. I don't see too much reason why Oklahoma can't. Um, so even if their defense struggles, I. I I don't see a ton of reason Oklahoma won't put up a lot of points. I'll take Oklahoma by a touchdown. Yeah, you made a great point. I think Oklahoma's offense is just going to be too much for Kansas, honestly, to stop in this game. I think Kansas offensively is probably going to put up at least 35 points in order to have a chance in this game. I got Oklahoma in this one as well, 38-30. to 30. I agree with you. It's probably going to be a, a more of a shootout than people think, even without Jalen Daniels. But I do think the Sooners uh, – you know, get over the hump and beat Kansas and keep their undefeated season alive as they really Oklahoma, if they lose one game, they're out. I, I don't think a one loss Oklahoma team, even with a win over Texas in the rematch in the Big 12 championship game, I don't think that'll be enough to get in the college football playoff this year. We'll see how the rest of the college football landscape shakes out. But Oklahoma, I think, is almost in a boat where the rest of the schedule for them is just really not that strong. I think it's almost like, hey, you got to go undefeated in order to make the college football playoff. So really, they're kind of walking on a tightrope every game right now in order for them to make the uh, the four-team playoff. But next thing we're talking about with other big playoff implications is the biggest game of the weekend, honestly, is number eight Oregon at number 13 Utah, 3.30 p.m. on Fox. And the big storyline, honestly, can Utah – ruin the dreams, the playoff dreams, of another Pac-12 contender. Last week, obviously, took down USC. Second year in a row, Utah ruined USC's playoff hopes. Fourth time in a row, Utah's beaten USC. Now they got to play Oregon this Saturday, and the game is at Utah. Utah right now has an 18-game home winning streak that dates back to the COVID 2020 season so 2021 2022 and this year obviously they have not lost a home game they got a big one against Oregon uh this Saturday but it's going to be tough it's going to be tough for Utah to do it again and maybe get to 19 games but it has been unbelievable what Utah has been able to do at home this year Dalton absolutely and the last few years and yeah. and Utah they're kind of defying everything PFF is about, right? <laughs> yeah. That that the you go out and you play well and and then you win games. And to be honest with you, a lot a ton of the metrics say Utah's like an average team. Uh, you know, they're they're you know, the defense, we talk about their defense and like they do such a good job and they're I look at the defensive grading and they're like middle of the pack, they're like 76, right? <laughs> Offensively, you know, we don't we know they don't throw the ball really really well, but like they're one of the worst pass protecting teams in the yeah. country, right? They they are defying a lot of things. And the more I watch the tape and the more I think about what they've accomplished, I start to think we, you know, we mentioned in our award show that Brent Venables, we picked Venables as the coach of the year. I gotta be honest, it's probably Kyle Whittingham probably is. at this point. Because is. you go, he doesn't have his starting quarterback. He didn't have his star tight end. I, I don't know if he's I don't know if he does now yet. No, he's, he's out for the back. season too. They announced Rising and Keith are both out for the season. So you're you you came into a season with your two best offensive players done for the year, 
before it even started, and several defensive starters were missing earlier in the year. And yet, you're 13th in the country, coming off a win over the Heisman Trophy winner. Yeah, they're kind of they're they're defying some logic right now. I, I got to be honest with you, and and I know that's a tough place to play. And 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 Oregon, look, regardless of what a lot of the metrics say about how much better Oregon should be here, they're the best team in pass protection, they're the best team in run grade. Bo Nix, the top six or seven quarterback right he's in the heisman race this this is going to be a dogfight because yep. that's all utah knows is how to get themselves into dogfights yeah absolutely and the matchup Dalton, you mentioned it is the only way i think utah can win this game is if making it as ugly as possible making it as low scoring as possible because you mentioned it utah's offense man and look at the passing game they're among the 20 worst teams in the country in passing grade receiving grade and pass blocking grade. You look at that pass blocking grade right there. They're 133 FBS teams. They are the second worst team in the country in terms of pass protection. The receiving core has not been good at all without Brand Keithy. Passing grade has not been good at all, obviously, without Cam Rising. They've really struggled. And I, yes, they have put up 34 points. And yes, Bryson Barnes did kind of outduel Caleb Williams, the pig farmer, as Kyle Whittingham put it, outdueled the Heisman Trophy winner. But I think that was more of an indictment on USC's defense than it was anything else. And Oregon's got a very well-coached defense. Utah, the same way. Utah's defense has an uphill battle with this Oregon offense, who can throw the ball as well as almost anyone. They can run the ball as well as anyone. They protect Bo Nix as, as better than anyone. Uh, it's going to be an uphill battle for Utah's defense. But I think ultimately, Dalton, if Utah wants to ruin Oregon's playoff chances, and honestly, keep Utah's playoff chances alive. I think a lot of people have kind of forgotten Utah only has one loss. They can absolutely... I know, you know, we're not talking about them as a legit playoff contender. They are absolutely still in this playoff race. I think if Utah wants to keep their playoff hopes alive and kill Oregon's playoff hopes, this game has to be as ugly and low scoring as possible for the U.S. to have a chance, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's something I think it's something we forget. You know, we talk about the top six and seven teams a lot. And there's some teams floating around in the top 20 with one loss. I think yep. about Alabama. I think about Utah. I think the only exception maybe might be North Carolina because that was a really bad loss yeah. um, last week to Virginia. You can't lose to a team like that. They might be the one exception, but you know if you're at this point in the year and you have one or zero losses, you're in it. You run the yep. Utah runs the table. They're absolutely, absolutely in it. They already mm -hmm. beat USC. They run the table. They beat Oregon. They beat Washington. They beat another good team along the way. Utah's got they and they 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 beat um, UCLA decisively. That's a big time win, I think. Mm -hmm. They they're absolutely in it. They're they're taking this, you know, Kyle Whittingham and them. They're taking this one week at a time, and that's the best way they can do it. Um, the biggest thing I see with Utah lately, okay, so before the last two games, they really were like winning in spite of their offense, and I know they're still winning in spite of the passing game, but they've gotten the run game going the last two weeks, mm -hmm. big time, big 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 time. They've they've Sione Vaki. All right, he's a converted safety. Mm -hmm. All right, now he's now he's playing tailback. Over the last two weeks, a ninety-five point two overall grade <laughs> at, at at a running back position. I, I don't know if he played it in high school or in the past. I, I don't know the entire backstory to that. I just know he's a converted safety who's got over the last two games thirty touches for three hundred and seventy yards, <sighs> which, which is crazy. <laughs> they have figured out a formula. Look, the goal for Utah. Until they, you know, it's not big plays. It's not getting vertical like these teams. Just get first downs. Yep. But I'll tell you, Vaki's got real, real speed. And the combination of him and Jaquindon Jackson and Bryson Barnes running the ball, what you're seeing is 
any of these three guys, if they find that crease and they get their shoulders north and south, especially Vaki, he's got just long speed like crazy. I, I don't know how they figured this out to put him now at running back, but these three guys, when they get their shoulders north and south, can cause a lot of problems in the run game. And Vaki's a lot of fun to watch, too, because they get in a lot of wildcat. They line him up at quarterback, right? And, and they just run. They run power. Everybody knows what's coming, and they just dare teams to stop it. So they have found something here in the run game that now can keep them in these games with elite teams like USC. You mentioned, I mean, we already know USC's defense is Civ, and they ran, I believe, for almost 250 yards on USC. This is the key, right? Yep. But which I kind of said it with Bama and Tennessee last week. Which team in this game has more rushing yards? You right now, what Utah is right this minute is an elite running team. They were not that their first five games. Oregon, we already know, is arguably the best running team in the country. Now, can Utah's defense respond? Because you want to make it ugly, but they don't make it ugly in like um, in an Iowa sense. Where they're gonna like be like real physical and like not really like if you look at their run defense grades, I, I mentioned how bad Kansas has been since week five and run defense. The only power five team in that stretch worse than them is Utah. Uh, you know, last week I, I'll be honest with you, watching the tape, if USC had just chosen to keep running the ball, they probably would have won the game. They yeah. went a stretch from the beginning of the second quarter to six thirty in the fourth quarter where they called three run plays. <laughs> That USC ran the ball three times in a span of almost 40 minutes. And to be honest with you, Marshawn Lloyd was going for almost 10 yards of carry. Yep. They could have just ran it right down the pipe. So they're going to have an issue. Utah has problems stopping the run between the tackles. Very similar to Kansas, actually. Right, Second worst team in the country stopping the run between the tackles. Oregon is the best team in the country running between the tackles. Mm -hmm. They the same, you know, it's a very similar dynamic to the first game we talked about. Oregon wants to go reasonably fast, foundation of their offense. They don't do a ton of complicated stuff. They're really really good at what they do. So, I, I think this is another one where the team with more rushing yards is going to win this game. Neither team wants to drop back really and throw the ball. And I know Bo Nix is really really good. But they still ideally don't want to just get in a drop back game, especially throwing into Utah's secondary is not what you want to do, especially in Utah. We've talked about this. Don't go down seven nothing on the first play. Don't screw around. If you're if I'm Oregon, I look at that USC tape and I go, Wow, they should have just ran the ball the whole mm -hmm. game. They just take the ball out of Caleb Williams' hands for once and you would have won it. Right? And and they want Williams to press and Lincoln Riley. I don't know if it's an ego thing or what over there, but they, they just want Caleb Williams to win them ball games, and that's one where they didn't need him to, right? So I, I think this is an interesting game up front in the run game to see. I, I think the team with more rushing yards in this game wins the ball game. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think that's a great point that you made. That yeah, Utah man, Sione Vaki. We mentioned our midseason awards a couple of weeks ago about how Travis Hunter should be still the the favorite for Paul Horning Award. Sione Vaki is making a case, man, with how good he's been going from safety to running back, and then also like Kyle Whittingham. They don't really recruit that many running backs. Their running backs are just converted from other positions because Jaquindon Jackson was a four-star quarterback going into Utah. They converted him to running back. He's been a great running back for them. Sione Vaki, like I mentioned, safety to running back. So Utah has just done a really good job of maybe not really recruiting running backs coming out of high school, just recruiting other positions and transitioning them to running backs. So it's been very, very impressive. But ultimately, Dalton, 
who do you think is coming out on top and who do you think keeps their college football playoff hopes alive? It's actually funny you mentioned Jackson with a conversion too because I think about um, another converted quarterback who's in the league now, Roshan Johnson. He kind of runs pretty similar to he him. Does. Between yeah. the tackles, Bigger, a little bit angry. As yeah. I kind of I get Roshan Johnson vibes. The same thing, converted quarterback. Now he's in the NFL, obviously, with the Bears and all that. He was, you know, Bijan Robinson's running mate, all that stuff. But kind of similar players. I, I This is a hard one. Yep. This is a hard one because of because of the environment in Utah at home, and and they just they continue to defy the odds. They they just everything tells you. Even last week, I had a hard time picking them with USC last week, and I, I ended up picking them just for our you know our Utah faithful that we have on this show. But it, it's mm, this this is a tough one. I think I'm I'm gonna go with Oregon still. Yeah, I, I think. What Oregon wants to do, and, and watching what USC, I mean, they only ran the ball like 15 times. It should have been a lot more. Watching what USC and what several other teams have done to them, like I think about even the Oregon State game, right, how they kind of ran on Utah, kind of had will. Um, you actually, I think in past years, you didn't want to get physical with Utah, especially when they had guys like Devin Lloyd and guys like that in the front seven. The front seven's a little more finesse this year, and I think if Oregon – Kind of similar to Oklahoma, they can really get to their the foundation of their offense. Kind of, it's a similar vibe where run it between the tackles, run it with Bucky Irving, Jordan James. You know, you can roll out Knicks here and there, but I, I think or- Oregon should really stick to their game because we've seen the one mistake that teams make going into Utah is kind of screwing around early. Don't don't spot them. You know, UCLA dropping back, throwing the ball. Um, Florida, Florida making a big coverage mistake early in the game. You just you don't want to fall behind. I don't think Oregon wants to fall behind anyway. You know, take the ball, run your bread and butter, run it down the pipe, and challenge Utah, especially between the tackles, to be more physical. But I'm going to take, I'm going to take Oregon. This is still going to be a war. Um, I'm going to take them 31 to 27. I, I just Utah. Utah defies all the odds, but I, I think they're going to come up a little short of getting over this mountain. I still think Oregon's really, really good. Yeah, you know, we mentioned a lot how teams just – usually the winner of most college football games is the team that has more opportunities to win the game in terms of like, okay, Oregon can win the game through Bo Nix. Oregon can win the game through their running attack. I think Utah really is just slow down Oregon's offense and run the football. And I, I that scares me when picking Utah in this game, even though it's at home, even though they have the 18-game home winning streak. I'm picking Oregon, too. I got 28-21. I think Utah offensively is going to struggle to score in this one. I think Oregon's defense is a lot, lot better than USC's defense. You see what, they, what happened in the Colorado game. And that you compare that to USC's defense, Oregon allowed six points in that game. Uh, USC allowed 30-plus in that game and almost lost the game for the Trojans. Uh, that kind of shows just the biggest difference you have. And Dan Lanning obviously coaching the defense. It's a big difference between Dan Lanning and Alex Grinch. I'll just put it that way. Uh, so I, I think Oregon will come out on top 28-21. They do just enough to stay alive in the college football playoff race. But uh, Utah, man, I mean, listen, the fact that they're still number 13 in the country without all those players, without Cam Rising, 
surprising without Brent Keithy. That says a lot about this coaching staff right now and how good this coaching staff is with a pig farmer at quarterback like Kyle Whittingham says. So I got Oregon in this game, but I, I do think it'll be close, man, and I don't know. Ultimately, I could very well see Utah winning this game and Utah fans getting on our comment section and, and clowning us once again for not picking the Utes. But this is one I just I can't I can't pick against Oregon right now. I think this still might be the best team in the Pac-12, even though they lost to Washington. I still think Oregon is going to come out on top and you know keep their playoff hopes alive. But the other ranked game that we have in Week Nine is number twenty Duke. At number 18, Louisville, 3.30 p.m. on ESPN. The biggest storyline is pretty simple. Will Riley Leonard be able to go? The star quarterback for, for Duke last week, he missed the NC State game with an ankle injury that he suffered against Notre Dame. Shocked everyone. You know, it came out before that, literally that morning, that Riley Leonard was doubtful for the game against Florida State. He shocked everyone when he played against Florida State. But... In the third quarter, he had a nasty sack where he got, you know, his face mask got tugged down. He re-injured that ankle, was out for the rest of the game. So the big question now is, okay, can he play again? Can he play again in another ranked game against Louisville, another ranked road game against Louisville? If not, Henry Bill in the fourth will be the starting quarterback. The Richard freshman right now has more turnover-worthy plays, too, than big-time throws this season. He's been solid, but he's definitely not the first-round prospect that Riley Leonard is. So I, I think ultimately, Dolan, the, the Duke's chances in this game for a road win pretty much hinge on whether or not Riley Leonard will be able to go just like it was last week. Um, yeah, the injuries are a problem, and they're a problem for Louisville, too. Jawar yep. Jordan only played eight snaps last week in the first quarter before leaving with a hamstring injury. So there, there's, there's injury bugs on both sides right now. I, I I have issues even with Riley Leonard in there. I have issues right now with Duke's offense. They It's especially over the last three weeks. Look, offensively, they've put up, I believe it's, 14, 24, and 13 points on offense. Their, their defense is carrying a load right now that I'm not sure they can carry much further. Let me let me give you the last three weeks of the two Duke quarterbacks combined. Leonard was in the here for a little over half of this, right? 24 for 61, 317 yards, one big-time throw, five turnover-worthy plays. This is with Riley Leonard's played about seven of those 12 quarters. Okay, this passing game is is not getting it done. And, and I know and look, I, I like Riley Leonard. He's a great kid. Every time I hear him talk, he's a great kid. He can he's a wicked athlete, but their passing game really all he has three passing touchdowns. Yeah. And Henry Bielan has three passing touchdowns. They just don't they just don't do much in the passing game. They win with defense, they win with running. They have 197 rushing yards in six of their seven games. They win Ugly. I, I don't think it's that different than the way that Utah wins. I think Duke's a little bit better. I think their secondaries at least. I, personally, and I know Clemson people are going to have an argument about this, I think Duke has the best defense in the ACC. Yeah, um, it's up there. For, what, for the load that they have to carry, I, I don't think it gets talked about enough that this Duke passing game just isn't there. You know, with Leonard, even when he was healthy, you know, I, it was hard to tell because they were playing UConn and Northwestern and teams like that, but it's just not. It's just not good. I, they, you know, since week five, the last four weeks, they have the third worst passing grade in the country. 
it's it's so hard for a defense to overcome that. Obviously, you play a team like Florida State who can score on a good defense, right? You know, we saw what this Louisville de- team did to Notre Dame. You know, they put up points on Notre Dame when they were when obviously and they were healthy. Jordan was healthy. Plummer played one of the best games of his life. Um, I, this Duke offense, I, I'm worried, regardless of the quarterback, that there is a week where it's going to really bottom out. And to be honest with you. Florida State got the better of them. Florida State's really good, and it's in Tallahassee. They they only put up 13 points on offense. Maybe the process has already started, but I'm worried about Duke and just the sheer lack of explosiveness through the air in this offense. Yeah, that's completely fair. And I think you brought up another good point where Jawar Jordan is kind of the the big question mark for Louisville right now, whereas Riley Leonard, you know, obviously is the big question mark for whether Duke can win. If Jawar Jawar does not be able to go, man, that is a major blow to uh, to Louisville offense. You see right there, he le- he's third in the FBS in yards per carry, 7.4. He actually leads the country in yards before contact per attempt with 3.6. Now, a lot of that, usually the yards before contact stat, a lot of it has to do with the offensive line. But in Jawar Jordan's case, Louisville's run blocking has been kind of average, honestly, or even below average this season. So I think for him, he's not a big running back. He's 185 pounds. The reason why his yards before contact stat is so up there, he has great vision. He's elite speed, elite burst. Guys don't get hands on him. That's why he's able to get so many yards before contact. When you get a hand on him, it's easy, easy to tackle. He's easy to bring down because he's only 185 pounds. But he is not easy to get your hands on, man, with how quick and agile and explosive he is. And you saw, too, on that uh, graphic, Duke right now, one of their biggest problems on defense, and I agree with you, that the coverage unit has been fantastic. So this is why I think there's a lot on Jawar Jordan's uh, shoulders in this game. The problem with Duke's defense, they're 97th in the country in run defense grade right now, allowing about 4.6 yards per attempt. So that's kind of the kryptonite for Duke's defense. And again, if Riley Leonard's not able to go, Duke's going to have a lot of trouble winning this game. But if Jawar Jordan's not able to go, I really struggle to see how Louisville will be able to do anything offensively without their star running back in there because he led them to victory in that Notre Dame game, and I think they're going to need him to lead them to victory again in this Duke game. Yeah, I I agree. I I think it's a very, very hard team to just try. Even Florida State learned this. It's a hard team to drop back and throw against. They play a lot of man coverage. Their secondary is wicked. You don't want to get into a drop back game. And Jack Plummer, to be honest with you, you don't want him in a drop back game anyway. This is this some gunslinging kind of kind of mentality there. I believe he's got ten turnover worthy plays on the year. He can be. There's times where he can make every throw on the field, and there's other times there's decisions that you really, really question. this this is going to be for Louisville. They they need Jordan healthy. Last week, yeah. Yeah, they running for only eighty yards really killed them. Um, that's that's really there's two reasons they lost that game, and I'll get into the second one in the prediction. But running the ball for only eighty yards yeah. killed them again against Pitt. This is a team that does need balance, and especially against Duke, you do not. Absolutely do not want to be in the dropback situation. This Duke secondary is an elite unit. It's the best unit on their team. I would say it's probably one of the five or six best secondaries in the country. Yeah, it's it's they are spectacular, and they gave Florida State a lot of problems early on. They really did. Um, I think Travis found the mobility late in the game. They found some play action. They started moving a little bit, but and, and honestly. With the way Duke's offense is playing, their defense is starting to wear down late in these games. 
Um, I think you saw it against Notre Dame, too, to be honest with you. They, Louisville does not want to be dropped. They really need Jordan in this game. Um, I, I'm not sure who else they can find a running game with because last week against Pitt, it was a real struggle. Yeah, absolutely. So ultimately, Dalton, who are you going with in this game? And honestly, uh, this game has pretty massive implications for who makes the ACC championship. Uh, I saw Kelly Ford, who's some, a, a fantastic analytical work on Twitter to follow him if you want. But he uh, he had this, the percentages in this game. And basically, the winner of this game is the new favorite to join Florida State in the ACC championship game, whereas the loser basically has no shot. So the winner of this game, basically them and North Carolina has the best chance. Loser has is basically out of it. So who ultimately do you think takes over as the new favorite to join Florida State in the ACC championship game? So, so I mentioned the run game last week against Pitt. And to be honest with you, that was the second biggest reason they lost that game. And you and and obviously losing by 17 to Pitt is is inexcusable. You don't want that, right? Especially if you're supposed to be top 20 and you have ACC title hopes and all this. But the big reason they lost that game was they lost the turnover battle three to nothing. Mm-hmm. And all three turnovers were inside the Pitt 25 yard line. Okay, Louisville is probably they they outgained them 450 to about 290. Plummer, I mean, Plummer threw for about 360. He wasn't terrible. He wasn't great. The two interceptions weren't good, especially the first one was was not good. They, th- But they're going to watch that tape feeling like, wow, we really had a million opportunities to win that game, and every time we got in the red zone or down in there, we just, we just dropped the ball, man. I mean, it just can't. It's hard to win a game when you lose a turnover battle three to nothing. Yeah. I, I have... Just, I have real, real issues with Duke's offense. Um, I, I think the cracks have been showing. I, I'm worried there's a game, and, and Louisville, look, Louisville right now, those those people, they know their team is good. That's a really fun environment. We saw it against Notre Dame. They were charged up against Notre Dame, and then they were careless. They were sloppy against Pitt. I, I Plummer's got some gunslinger, but as a team, they haven't shown to be that sloppy consistently yet. I, I got, I, I think if if Leonard doesn't play, honestly, I don't think Duke has a shot. Um, I, I just don't think Balin. I don't think he can go in there and win a game like this. And and even for Leonard, on a bad ankle, we talked about. Look, you can clearly see it last week. The mobility wasn't all there. 75 percent. It just wasn't. A couple of good runs, but Leonard needs the mobility to succeed anyway. I, I think there's more scenarios here for Louisville to win, I, I, and it's gonna it's gonna still be ugly. It's gonna be defensive. Um, I'll, I'll take Louisville 24 to 17. Um, and I could definitely see Duke scoring less points than that because Louisville's defense isn't bad either. There's not a ton of depth. They want, they need to see if Jarvis Brownlee's playing at corner. Um, they, they just, you know, Ashton Gelati with the pass rush is going to be big time too. I, I just see a few more scenarios, especially if Jordan is going to play where Louisville wins this game. I think Duke on the road is going to need just another superhuman effort from their defense, and I I don't know that it's going to be enough to overcome it. Yeah, that's fair. I actually – we're going to disagree on this one. I think it might be the only game that we disagree on this one. I got Duke uh, 24-23. I was really impressed by Duke last week. Now, of course, the 18-point loss doesn't look that great, but this is kind of like the LSU loss when Florida State took down LSU where they just went on a tear in the fourth quarter and made it look a lot more lopsided than it actually was. 
Duke had a lead in this game uh, in the second quarter, and then really uh, Florida State after that just completely took over the game. But Duke really had Florida State on the ropes in that game. I don't know if Louisville is capable of doing that, honestly. Now, I know they beat Notre Dame, of course, but that I think was a lot to do with Notre Dame just being gassed. I think Duke's a, a very quality team. I think there's a chance Riley Leonard plays. I have no intel on that. But if, if he played against Florida State, he re-injured the ankle. He was warming up on the sideline. He was begging Mike Elko to go in the game. I, I think there's a chance he does play in this one as well. And if he does play, I feel really good about this pick. Um, but even if he doesn't, man, I think if Jawar Jordan is, is hobbled a little bit, I really, really struggle to see how Louisville can do anything offensively without Jawar Jordan you know, or even Hopper. You know where that game turned last week was when right when Leonard got hurt and they were down there on about the five or six-yard line and yeah. Balin came in, called off the bench, and then they went for it. Yep. They were up three. They were up, I believe it was 20 to 17. Yep. They were up three, and they, you know, they, they, I think they ran the ball on third down, and then they let Balin go for it on fourth and three or so from like the six. The type of game they were playing, I, I really, this is, that's, it's a problem to me. I go, why, if you're clearly playing this defensive physical game and you're winning it, why go for the, I go agree. for the kill there with your backup quarterback. That's where the game turned. I think there was about three or four minutes left in the third quarter. It, it That one decision to me turned it upside down because you could have easily been up six and just kept playing defense. And, and I, I don't know why they trusted Balin in that spot. I think Duke has – they still – if they're going to win, they need to play their style of ball, and that has to that has to roll into the decision-making with things like that. I, I was not a fan of that at all. No, dude, I think we even texted about it, about how you know much we disagreed with that call. And right after that, I mean, you think about it. Like, usually when you go for it with that close to the end zone, you think, okay, best case, obviously, we score a touchdown here. Worst case – they get the ball on the five-yard line. They go three and out, whatever, and then they punt back to us. We have another chance to score. Florida State went on a 96-yard touchdown drive after that. They got all the momentum. All the momentum that Duke had was gone after that. And I agree with you, man. I mean, when you have a backup quarterback, you just thrust in there for his, like, second play of the game, and you're making him throw the ball on fourth and – basically fourth and goal, that is a big problem. So I, I hated that play call, too. And then right after that, Florida State scored the touchdown to take the lead, and then Duke was playing catch-up after that, which is not something you want to be doing – with Henry Beal and a quarterback. So I agree with you, man. I think that was a turning point of the game where Duke had all the momentum. They could have gone off by six, and then Florida State would still be playing catch-up. Instead, Florida State makes a big stop on defense, goes 96 yards, uh, and scores a touchdown to take the lead, and they never give the lead after that. I think that was the big turning point of the game, absolutely. So I got Duke in this one. I think they're going to bounce back. Um, and I think they're going to take down Louisville, too. I think that they're going to beat Louisville on the road, and it'll be a really, really good game, honestly. Uh, the other one that we're talking about today is number one Georgia going against Florida in the world's largest outdoor cocktail party, 3.30 p.m. on CBS. And, Dawn, the big story, obviously, is Georgia going into their most difficult stretch of the season without its superstar tight end in Brock Bowers. He's missing four to six weeks with surgery on his injured ankle. Right now it's probably about three to five weeks now after the bye week. Um, it really could not have come at a worse stretch for the Bulldogs. They have, the next four games, they play four top 30 teams in PFF's power rankings. Florida, number 16 Missouri in the AP poll, number 12 Ole Miss, and number 21 Tennessee. You see right there, those are the rankings in PFF's power rankings. Uh, it's going to be a tough stretch for Georgia. And now, without their star tight end, who could be missing all four of those games, 
Now is time for Georgia, the defending back-to-back -back champs, to show, hey, we are the number one team in the country. Even without our star player, we can get through this stretch. But that's the big storyline, Dalton, is honestly, can they get through this stretch without their superstar? Absolutely, and I was going the same place. It's going to be a challenge now, right? Uh, you're, you've got a team whose wide receivers who are 68th in the country in receiving grade. Yep. So they, they need to step up, and this is not about Carson Beck either. Look, you want you want the list of guys with better passing grades on a, a, at least 150 dropbacks than Carson Beck? Here Amen. we go. Shadur Sanders, mm -hmm. Michael Penix, Tyler Van Dyke, Jaden Daniels, J.J. McCarthy. That's wow. it. That's the list of guys with 150 dropbacks with a better passing grade than Carson Beck. It's it's not him. It's they need other guys to step up. All right. I mean, we saw it a little bit when they played Kentucky. They were getting down the field. Look, Carson Beck, he makes really good decisions. He makes efficient decisions. He's got the third fastest time to throw in the power five. He gets rid of the football. There is a clear groove here with the quick game, play action getting rid of the football, get it out of his hands. He doesn't move too much. Georgia's, you know, it's part of the reason their numbers and pass protection are so good is because Beck gets rid of the ball. They've got several NFL offensive linemen out there, but they they need these receivers in these next four weeks to step up without Bowers. McConkie is obviously the best of the bunch. They, they, they need to separate consistently, and especially, you know, Georgia's one. It's kind of these two teams – I think offensively they operate kind of similar. Um, you you got two teams that do want to run the ball, that want to get to play action, that don't want to get in drop back game. And and to be honest with you, Graham Mertz on the whole, you look at the numbers, probably better than I thought they would be. But it's a weird one. This is a challenge for him too, where it's going to be you're playing one of the best secondaries in the country. You know Malachi Starks and a big time secondary. He's got two games with a ninety plus grade, but not another one at at least the 73. So which Graham Mertz are we getting? Yep. And what what can Carson Beck do? Because I think there's – it's not just about their ability now with Georgia at receiver. It's about, well, now that you don't have to – you know, we've talked about before having the bracket and double Bowers and, and focus the entire game plan on him. Well, now these guys are in much less favorable matchups with a lot less space, right? You know, you might see Florida come out and try to play man-to-man -man with them. You're not going to man-to-man on Bowers. You're not going to do that. But it's it's going to be – now, the good thing for Georgia, if you were going to start with a little bit of a soft landing, Florida, they don't do anything across their whole team spectacular. But I would say the biggest part where they struggle is in coverage. Yeah. All right? Overall, 70th in coverage grade. But if I take out the two non-Power 5 games against McNeese State and Charlotte, which in Charlotte's just, you know, that's that's not good. And they still only beat them 22-7. to seven. Their coverage grade against Power 5 teams drops to 109th. They, they just, there's too many busts on the back end with this Florida team. And Carson Beck, especially against Kentucky, showed if you mess something up on the back end, he's going to find it. Yep. He's going to find it. You know, he's, I think he's a guy who, certainly not in the Heisman race, especially with the traditional numbers. But a guy who's, I don't think we've talked about enough, uh, you know, for, you know, I, I think Carson, we've talked to, let's say we've talked about Kyle McCord a lot. Carson Beck is what we're waiting for Kyle McCord to be. Absolutely. Right? He's, he's really been just so darn consistent that he's almost boring. 
and and, and he's he's I don't he's not the problem here. Nope. Like with Georgia, if they they're winning games, especially the last two or three, because of Carson Beck, they've taken another step offensively. If he can get them through, if he can get them through this stretch, especially these next three, well, really all four. Tennessee's defense is really good. I don't know if they'll Bowers by then either. All four of these teams, we start talking about Carson Beck. Like, whoa, okay, now the three peats on because we were worried about quarterback probably more than anything, and very very quietly he's been big time. But they need these receivers to step up. These are some maybe not this week, but these are some good defenses. We've we've talked about. Chris Abram Strain against uh, with Missouri, Kamal Haddon in Tennessee secondary. Right, they're going to have to put up a lot of points on Ole Miss. They need these receivers to step up, and Bowers being out is absolutely the biggest story of their season. It absolutely is, man, because not only is he one of the greatest tight ends college football has ever seen, he's also really, like you said, the only one who's kind of holding up what's been an otherwise average receiving core for Georgia. Bowers has 237 more receiving yards than Georgia's next closest receiver. That is outrageous for any wide receiver, let alone a tight end, to be leading the team by that much. And you mentioned it too. I mean, they have the 19th best receiving grade in the country, including Bowers. When you take them out of there, you look at just the receivers, 65th in the country, man. So big, big problem. And I agree with you, man. Carson Beck is honestly, I think he deserves more love in the Heisman conversation. More like probably top 10, top 15 candidate kind of love because he has really, really impressed me. But now you take away the ultimate security blanket in Brock Bowers. Who becomes his new top target now against these defenses, against these really good teams that he's playing against? Ladd McConkey missed the first few games with an injury. He's back now, but they've kind of slowly been incorporating him into the offense. Marcus Rosemey Jackson has kind of been their top receiver all season long. But again, like these are guys that only have a couple hundred receiving yards this year. It's not like any of them are really doing that well. I think it'll be a lot more of him spreading the ball around. I don't think it'll be just him targeting one receiver, but it's going to be interesting, man. Hopefully, Ladd McConkey, who I liked a lot before the season, hopefully he gets fully healthy now because they're really going to need him now uh, in this stretch. But ultimately, Dalton, who are you going on? Who are you picking in this game in the world's largest outdoor cocktail party? I, I still like the Bulldogs. Um, I, I, this is a case where I just have to pick the better team. Um, Florida Florida doesn't do anything spectacular. They, they, there's not a single thing they do on an elite level. They got two good backs. Graham Mertz is playing pretty good, but not elite. I, I don't think, you know, you take out a, he was good against Charlotte, and I believe he was good against Tennessee, if I remember that right. But other than that, he's kind of same old Graham Mertz. They. Florida, I just don't know that there's enough juice here unless the Georgia passing game really, really struggles. Now, I think Kirby Smart is going to tell his offensive line in that run game, listen, it's it's on you guys now too because we, we can't we can't drop back and throw the ball like we did before. Um, I, I, I think I think there's some matchup issues for Florida. Look, Pearsall's really good, but yeah. they don't have another consistent performer at receiver. We've talked before about how good Georgia is at holding running backs down in the run game. If you're going to run on Georgia, you need some sort of dynamic element from the quarterback. Florida doesn't have that. Graham Mertz is not that guy, right? He does not bring any running threat. So you're talking about a traditional run game, a traditional pocket quarterback, and a defense that still... I would call Florida's defense just decent. I mean, Prince, you know, Uman Mielin can rush the passer, 
but Georgia gets rid of the football and their pass protection is really good. So it's, it's kind of neutralized a bit. I, I, other than just kind of like rivalry mojo turnover, you know, something other, other than maybe Georgia's receivers struggling a bit, but this is not the best secondary in the country by any means. No. I'm not sure how, like, what the clear path here is for Florida to win this game. I think it could it could certainly be competitive because these two teams most years are competitive. There's some weird stuff that happens in this one. But I'll, I'll take Georgia. I'm still going to take them 34 to 20. Um, I, I just – this just feels like one where I, I, I'm just – it's they're just better. They're just yeah. better kind of across the board. They do everything Florida does but better. I agree, man. I'm taking Georgia in this one, 31 to 17. You mentioned the run game for Florida and how we always, in all of our previews we've done with Florida, we've always mentioned run the ball more. And it was the reason why they beat Tennessee in that game. But you look at Florida, they are running the ball at basically 45% of the time, which is 108th in the country, man. This is not a team that's relying on the run game, even though you would think this offense, the bread and butter, should be Trevor Etienne and should be Montreal Johnson. They're relying on Graham Mertz, and he's been solid. Don't get me wrong, a lot, a lot more solid than I thought he would have been. But I'm, I've kind of been surprised by how little Florida has run the ball this season. I agree with you; they're not going to be able to do it this week. Florida, Georgia has done a really good job. But you saw that Kentucky game, how lopsided that got. It really was because Ray Davis wasn't able to carry Kentucky like he needs to. Devin Leary is kind of, I think, not, maybe a little bit worse than Graham Mertz right now, but he's kind of on that level where it's like you need your quarterback to step up in this game. I don't think Florida's going to have that. Even without Brock Bowers, I think Georgia's going to win this game pretty convincingly. Might be a little close in the first half. I think they'll pull away in the second half. Uh, Georgia 31-17 is my final score. The last game that we're talking about is BYU at number 7 Texas, 3.30 p.m. Eastern time on ABC. Now, Dalton. A lot of people watching this right now are saying, wait a minute, you're not talking about Ohio State, Wisconsin. You're not talking about Tennessee, Kentucky, but you're talking about BYU, Texas. Like, why are we talking about this game? Because the big storyline, honestly, in college football this weekend, besides all the stuff that's going on off the field, is Texas without Quinn Ewers. That's the big storyline right now. For the second straight season, Quinn Ewers went down with a shoulder injury. This time is his throwing shoulder that suffered a grade two AC joint sprain in the 31-24 win over Houston. He's week to week. He's definitely missing this week. Uh, but now, in his absence, will likely be Malik Murphy, redshirt freshman. He's earned a 50.3 grade on 33 snaps this year. He's a four-star recruit coming out of high school a couple years ago. However, Steve Sarkeesian did note that Arch Manning, the number one overall recruit, the, the five-star number one quarterback, obviously, and the next in line to the Manning quarterback dynasty will be getting some first-team reps in practice. And a few weeks ago, Steve Sarkeesian even said that he was really impressed by Arch Manning. So there's been a lot of talk that if Murphy struggles at all, or even if not, they might play both these quarterbacks in this game. We might finally see Arch Manning's debut against, let's face it, a pretty good BYU team. They're 5-2 and two right now. They're a top 50 team in PFS Power Rankings. But regardless of who plays Dalton, the new quarterback has a lot of pressure on them because a loss for Texas will be their second of the season, and that eliminates them from the college football playoffs. So big storyline in this game and why we're talking about this game is what the heck Texas looks like without a star quarterback. 
Yeah. Oh no, it's 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 a mystery. It is between Murphy having only thrown eight career passes and Manning yet to step on the field. It, it's it's a big, it's a big suspenseful element to this game. It's really the biggest mystery in this game because uh, you look at this otherwise, and and Texas I think has some clear advantages here. We'll get into, but when you're talking about guys like like Murphy and and the number one recruit in the country and Arch Manning. You know, Sarkeesian didn't get this guy to not play him. I, yeah. You know, and, and I know really with the idea that he was sitting behind Ewers is one thing. Now it's wide open. I, yeah. I think I think you're right. This thing almost goes. I don't know if it goes drive to drive, but I would bet it goes about half to half. If they feel like they need a jolt at halftime, you you could easily see Manning come out at halftime. Um, I, I th- this is this is a tough one. Because we've, I think Texas is actually built to sustain themselves through this sort of thing, especially with the Big Twelve schedule. But it's it's going to be very interesting if BYU can go in there and get off to a good start defensively. If there's going to be a decision to be made, because Murphy, you know, he played the whole fourth quarter last week, and I think maybe it's just obviously cautious backup coming in cold. But in a tight, tight game with Houston. In the entire fourth quarter, they only threw two passes. Yeah. Now, obviously, you have Jonathan Brooks. You hand him the football as much as you can. But I, I don't know if that should tell me something or not. That, uh, you know, in a, a tie game, it was a tie game with Houston late in that game, that they only threw two passes the entire fourth quarter. And if you lose to Houston, your season's over, yep. right? Same thing. You lose to any of these teams. Your season's over, right? You know, not only not only for the playoff, you won't even get in the Big Twelve title game. So you you cannot afford any of these losses in this quarterback situation, despite a ton of other Texas advantages that that we'll get into momentarily. This is the biggest bit of suspense in this game, and and, and obviously just the fun narrative suspense of when are we going to see another Manning? But <laughs> I, I think even even for Murphy, just winning, just trying to win the game, you go. We have no idea. We, uh, I, I don't. We don't have any info on him. He's thrown eight career passes. I got nothing. So we're we're kind of as in the dark as everybody else on this. Yeah, literally, all we have to go off of it, the graphic literally was just okay. This is what they were coming out of high school. This is how they were recruited coming out of high school. This is where they were ranked coming out of high school. That's all we know about either of these guys really so far. Because Murphy has only played thirty three snaps. Manning has not played any snaps. Both of them only in their second and first year in the pro, in college football right now. So we're just basing it off of hey, they were four star and five star coming out of high school. So we'll see. We don't know anything about these guys, which makes it so intriguing. And I think we're, I. I do think we're going to see both these guys in this game. So that's going to be a really, really interesting part. And you mentioned it, man. Houston could have tied the game, too, with about a minute left. And then that game was probably going to overtime. And then who knows what happens after that. But thankfully, for Texas's sake, the defense made a big stop on fourth down to end up winning that game. But now you got a full game now of Malik Murphy or Arch Manning or both of them. It's going to be really interesting. But the big matchup for me, Dalton, is... BYU needs to stop Jonathan Brooks. If they want any chance of this game, they got to stop Jonathan Brooks because right now he is third among Power 5 running backs in rushing yards, and he's third among Power 5 running backs in forced missed tackles. He's been one of the best running backs in college football this season, even after 
Texas lost Bijan Robinson and Rashawn Johnson. They still have one of the best running backs in college football. That shows how elite they are. They also, his backup is C.J. Baxter, who's a true freshman. He was the number one running back coming out of high school, too. So this running back dynasty that they have going on will continue year after year after year with how well they're recruiting there. BYU's run defense, just about average. They're 66th in the country uh, with 4.4 yards allowed per attempt. But I think in this game, BYU should stack the box, man, and make Malik Murphy or make Arch Manning prove that they are capable as a quarterback because if not, if you take away Jonathan Brooks and this becomes a game where Malik Murphy or Arch Manning has to go out and win it, that could be the scenario where BYU pulls off the upset. But if Jonathan Brooks runs all over them, Texas is probably going to win this game pretty handedly. Yeah, I, I agree. I like the direction you're going there, and I think for me, I'm, I'm going to throw the counterpunch at make make the quarterbacks beat you, which is what they should do, but I'll throw one thing at you. what Max, what's a quarterback's best friend? The tight end, receiving core? Clean pockets. Oh, okay, yeah. Clean pockets, <laughs> pass protection. BYU since week four, all right, this covers four games. They have two sacks. Yeah. Two in the last four games. Only Wake Forest has fewer. Okay, they they just don't rush the passer. Uh, their their pressure rate in that span is the ninth worst in the country, and Texas has the seventh best pass protection in the country. Now, I do think I'm with you. They should ride Brooks and ride the defense and play complementary football. I think Sarkeesian understands that, right? And and I think he's got enough experience to know he's been on enough of those teams to know when to lay off your quarterback a bit, right? But I think for either of these quarterbacks, there should be opportunities to see the field. When, you, when you're playing a pass rush, when you have this much of a mismatch, pass protection versus pass rush, and Murphy, you know, actually Manning too, you know, he's he's mobile. He's not like Eli, he's not like Eli and Peyton. Arch Manning can move a little bit. Yeah. He gets out on the move, okay? So you've got a team that can't rush the passer, and you've got a team that protects the passer really well. I think you give these two guys, either one of them or whoever's in there, Enough time in the pocket, as they should have, they can still beat you. Anybody can beat you in a clean pocket. And honestly, this will be a thing with Murphy. Let's say first half he comes out and he gets 90% clean pockets and he's not making throws. Then you start really thinking about it. I think more so than if he gets hit and rattled or any of that stuff. right? If, he, if, he's, if he's out there, all of a sudden they're blitzing, he's getting hit, all this stuff, who's it going to come on? The front five. Sark's going Sark's to kill his offensive line. He needs it more than ever right now. The other one is on the other side of the ball, you got a BYU team. I, I, I wasn't even aware of this. They are they have the fewest rushing yards per game in the Power Five. They only run for 79 yards a game, and that's very odd. It's, it's kind of this thing. In the Mountain West, they always ran the ball really, really well, even when they had you know really good quarterbacks, Jaron Hall and Zach Wilson and, and, and these guys who they, they still ran the ball as, as a very big functioning part of their offense. And it kind of feels like this year is like, hey, welcome to the Big 12. You can't just line up and run these teams over and run the same two run plays. That You know, Texas, you got an 88.1 run D grade that's, uh, I believe, in the top 15 in the country. This There are distinct advantages in yeah. this game for Texas in the trenches that are going to make this really hard for BYU. And I think a lot, lot easier for whichever quarterback is in there for Texas. I, I think if Murphy... Is clean back. He's got every advantage in the world. His O line. He's got one of the best backs in the country. Really, really good group of receivers. We've been over them. You know Mitchell and Worthy and, and those guys. 
Whittington. They've got all the advantages in the world, these two quarterbacks, in, in this matchup, I think. I think BYU, a little bit like Florida, maybe to a lesser degree, other than the run game, they're kind of just solid-ish across the board. There's not a single thing I can point to at BYU and say, oh, that's an elite thing they do. Oh, yeah. wow, they're top 10 or whatever in that. There's, I Nothing. But Texas, to me, has to win this game in the trenches. And to be honest with you, with Ewers outside of the Alabama game, it's kind of how they were winning it anyway, no? Yeah. That basically is, yeah. So, you know, I, so yeah, it's been tough. I, I, I just think I think the environment is right for Murphy or Manning to succeed. Yeah, I would agree with you, man. And I think another point that I want to make before we go on to our predictions, the you mentioned a great point. The, the Texas receivers are elite, man. This is one of the best receiving cores in college football with Worthy, Sanders, Javion Sanders, the tight end, Whittington, obviously A.D. Mitchell, Adani Mitchell as well. BYU's coverage unit has been bad this year, man. They have the 10th worst coverage grade in the Power 5 this season. There will be opportunities. You mentioned the pass rush for BYU isn't there either, and Texas has an elite offensive line. So all of a sudden, you have Arsh Manning and you have uh, Malik Murphy back there with time with an elite receiving core against a bad pass rush, against a bad coverage unit. There's every opportunity for either one of these quarterbacks to really succeed in this game. It's just about whether or not they could do it. That really is it, and they both were highly recruited coming out of high school. It's not like you're just trotting out some walk-on out there. They both were five stars and four stars coming out of high school. Now it's time to just see it, and I, I think they will have every opportunity. Now next week they got Kansas State, who has you know is really improving down the stretch, even though they've got kind of a rough start to the season. That'll be a big test, and we're probably going to preview that game next week. But I do think this week Arch Manning and Malik Murphy, this is this is a big opportunity for them to kind of get right in this game and kind of say, okay, you know, get your confidence going because next week that's a huge game with Kansas State. Um, but this is kind of a huge game for them too, just to see what these kids have in store. But ultimately, Dawn, I think I have an idea who you're going with in this game. But what is your final score prediction? Yeah, yeah, I, I think you know. I think the when I saw the tape and saw the numbers and some of the matchups, even without Ewers, um, I, I think this is one. Of, I think this is the easiest one. I, I'll take. I'm going to take Texas. I think they're going to find their way. Complimentary football. I'm actually going to take them 28 to 10. Um, I, I the one way BYU stays in this game is if let's say Murphy's starting. Is if if he's just faltering. But I don't think Sarkeesian would even let him falter for a whole for the whole game. I, I think he would only let him falter for a half. Uh, you know, if you've got the number one recruit in the country sitting there, you have to put him in there if you think you're going to lose this game. You have to just find your way through it, right? But I do think Texas, the environment is set up right for Murphy to succeed. Better, way better off their offensive line against BYU's D line is a big mismatch. Way better on the other side too. It's Evandre Sweat and those guys stopping the run against a BYU team that just can't run the football. That 79 yards a game is just awful. And, and you mentioned the weapons against the secondary. Uh, there's just no – if Quinn Ewers was was in, there is basically, I don't think, any way BYU wins this game. Um, the backups are the only reason they have a chance, and, and I just don't think – I think Sarkeesian understands his team. Look, I think even with Ewers at times playing – just mediocre football. I, I think he's learned uh, through enough of these games. I, I don't. I actually don't think this is going to look that different from most other Texas games that we've watched. I think it's going to be they're going to be good in the trenches. We've talked about before. They're really a defensive team, man. Yeah. I, I mean, defense Brooks, 
and the quarterbacks need to make throws when they need to, especially in play action. Play action is a big thing. I mentioned Oklahoma's play action defense earlier. Well, a big part of that, the struggles, is playing Texas in their play action game, focusing on Brooks and Ewers throwing it behind their linebackers. It's a, Texas has the advantages where they want them, and the quarterback thing is the biggest story. But I think it's the only way those one or both of those guys faltering is the only way BYU wins this game because they just there's just not I, I I don't I don't know where the cracks are yeah. I, like I don't know it's hard for me to find where BYU can succeed without really having it feel like Texas is screwing this up if that makes sense give, give me twenty eight to ten Texas. Yeah, I got 27-17 Texas in this one. I agree with you, man. And I would feel a little less confident in this Texas uh, victory if the backup quarterback was some low three-star recruit. Now, it is dangerous. Don't get me wrong. It is dangerous to just base an idea off a player based off his recruiting ranking. But at the same time, you have talented, talented backup quarterbacks for Quinn Ewers. They had one of the best quarterback rooms in the country entering the season and now is getting tested now with uh, without Quinn Ewers. So I got Texas 27-17. It won't be pretty, always be pretty in this game, but I think they'll survive without Quinn Ewers. Now next week is a whole different story. When they got Kansas State, we'll see how well these two quarterbacks do in this game. But I think this is kind of a, a good first game for both those quarterbacks. It's kind of just get your feet wet a little bit in this one. But that's what we got for our Week 9 preview should be a weird week of college football, which is always the best weeks of college football. Uh, stay tuned on Monday for our next episode. Not sure what we're doing just yet. Probably some more trivia, though. And then also our Week 10 preview next Wednesday as well. But for Dalton Wasman, for producer Eli back there, I'm Max Chadwick, and we'll see you guys next time.